a shame. You always had a situation in a big way, man. express myself sometimes when I need to be properly different. Fuck. Welcome to the lockdown. Remember, any opinions we have on this show are our own and not that of our employers. So don't come at us with that law shit. Tonight, we welcome professional BJJ competitor and Polaris veteran Jamie Hughes to the show. He's a coach at Celtic Pride. Jamie holds black belts in both BJJ and judo. Uh, Jamie's most recent success was at reaching the podium at the incredibly tough IBJJF European Championships, uh, most recently in January. Welcome, Jamie. How are you doing? Uh, not bad. Thank you, Jeffrey Block. Don't like everyone else. Excellent. How, how is lockdown life treating you? Are you uh, super, I uh, know that you're super frustrated that there is no training going on, or, although you are training, obviously, but not uh, with other people, I guess. Yeah, um, to be honest with you, I'm not as bad as I thought I was going to be. So we're like, well, coming up seven weeks in now. I thought I was going to struggle a lot more, but I'm just trying to like keep a positive mindset and just training like the same sort of manner as I would just without jiu-jitsu so I'm still training three times a day just like well obviously I can't train jiu-jitsu which is fucking shit yeah yeah and do you think it's been easier for you because you know everyone's in the same boat pretty much do you think that's been you know most of the problem with us and jiu-jitsu is that if we know other people training and we're not that is where the anxiety comes but if you know that no one's training then we're all sort of level pegging to a certain extent is that do you think that makes a difference to you yeah yeah i think like early on when it happened there was like all the gyms are closed so i'm not really going to be losing anything because when we all come back we're all going to be like you said in, in in the same boat um like i just equate it to like like having an injury mm-hmm. i just i just think like oh, I, I blow my knee out essentially i blow my knee out and but i'm still able to do things so that's the way i equate it like I had like a pretty bad injury when I was a purple belt and I was out for like eight months. So that gave me like early on, like I don't really stress about things too much. Now if I'm off the mat, I know I'm always going to recover and get back on it. So even with this, I know eventually I'm going to be back on the mat and, and, and doing what I love. So it's just one of those things. You just got, There's nothing I can physically do about it. So just, just suck it up and, and wait and see. Yeah, absolutely. So just just to for the list the people listening and um, ourselves, just tell us a bit about yourself, Jamie. Just how you got into martial arts to start with, and then like your route through to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and kind of where you're at now with uh, your competition career, your coaching work, and things like that. So, and where did it all start? Um, it all started. Um... I'd done my first martial arts lesson when I was 17. Um, before that, I had no real interest in martial arts at all. 
Um, I was 17. I just finished my first year of college and I wasn't doing any sport. And my father recognized this and he uh, took me to a, a Thai boxing class that um, at the time it was my sister's partner. He was running like a, a small little beginner's Thai boxing class in like a pub function room. So he pretty much forced me to go. He was like, you've got to do something. You've got to have like some sort of some outlet because all I was doing was basically just going out on the piss with my mates and, and going to college. So when I was 17, I went to my uh, my first Thai boxing lesson and I just loved it initially as a little first lesson. I was like, oh, this is amazing. So from there, I was training Thai boxing like pretty much as much as I could. So I was getting like four lessons in a week and then within a year, I was uh, fighting professionally in, in Thai boxing. So I made my pro Thai boxing debut when I was 18. And I won that by like third round TKO. And at the time, um, the two, the, the pub function room, there was a jiu-jitsu class going on alongside it, which was my current coach now, Greg Creel. He was like a, a blue belt at the time, I think. And he was running like a little beginner's grappling class. So I had like a, <clears throat> a little try of that. And I was like, ah, oh, this jiu-jitsu stuff is a bit gay and uh, people rolling around on the floor. And it just wasn't for me. So... It took me another year until we moved to our first um, first premises before I actually started training jiu-jitsu properly when I was 19. So the only reason I started training um, jiu-jitsu is because I, I had aspirations to fight uh, mixed martial arts. Because obviously I'd done a bit of Thai boxing, so YouTube was just come, coming around there. And so I was watching like loads of fights and I was like, oh, this, this MMA stuff looks cool. I'd like to try it. So I started going to jiu-jitsu classes basically just so I to get up off the floor and punch people in the face. So I made then my amateur MMA debut when I was 19. And I think I had like So I ended up like uh, winning like the, the British amateur title. And I think I had like a nine and two record. I fought some good opposition as well. I fought um, Leon Edwards, who's like number four ranked. UFC welterweight now, so I fought guys like that, and then I got the awards like the end of uh, like my amateur fights, and I was really struggling to get matchups because I was making welterweight, and I was six foot six, seventy seven kilos with good tie boxing, and my jiu jitsu was progressing pretty quickly, so it got to a point where I couldn't get matchups, and I just started competing jiu jitsu a little bit, and then it just took over my life it was like I just couldn't get enough of training jiu-jitsu so I sat down with Greg and my Thai boxing coach one day and I said look this is what I want to do for the rest of my life I love training jiu-jitsu I love competing it so I think I was about um just about turning 20 and I, I got my blue belt about six months before and I made the decision that this is what I wanted to do so since then, that's pretty much all I've done. I've traveled, competed for like the last, well, it's coming up uh, 10 years now since I made that decision and is where I've come to today. And I just want to talk about your, I guess your most memorable, because, you know, uh, you, there's a lot of black belts that don't compete and you are obviously extraordinarily competitive and just really think want to just hear about your most memorable competitions that you've done in jiu-jitsu to date really and then just cover your lead up to the euros because <clears throat> the euros is probably 
considered by a lot of people as you know one of the toughest jiu-jitsu competitions around really you know uh it, you get loads and loads of tough competitors from loads of different countries you know it's not really like your regular jiu-jitsu competition everybody's got the game face on especially at black belt it's very seriously uh taken very seriously a lot of those guys are professionals so just first of all what what are the sort of highlights so far of your competitive career um like competitive career i've been lucky enough at all the tournaments i ever set out i wanted to enter and i wanted the fight i've been lucky enough to do so i've got to fight um world championships uh pan ams euros uh polaris i've got to compete in brazil uh all, all over europe north america south america so the the big ones would stand out to me were getting to fight the like my, especially like the world championships that's that's like the, the the biggest event but then my favorite event has always been the euros mm. um reason being the i think i didn't get on the podium at the euros until i was a, a brown belt so i every year i went i made the quarterfinals. so i did my first one at blue belt i had like a load of fights got knocked out just before the medal rounds in the quarters i had two goals at purple both done the same uh, ended up didn't end up getting um to the medal rounds again not in the court finals and i think i've done my first first world championships at purple belt which was that was a super good experience because i i went out and i'd done like a a, a month's training camp out with um uh, my head coach eduardo tales and that was like a super cool experience because i was living with uh, dean lister as well all right cool so i was tra- splitting my time between like uh training with dean nine nine and then going to atos as well so uh that that world championship was really fun because obviously i watched the worlds every year when i was a, a lower belt and the purple belt was the first time i was really able to afford it so i went out and i managed to have a really good run i got the got the quarterfinals i beat like three guys i beat like i think it was a world champion and uh like two american national medalists on the way to the the quarterfinal and i got beaten by um gutenberg Pereira was like uh one of the top black belts in the world now so that was one of my real highlights what was it like training with um atos and and with dean lister and that sort of thing what was that experience like how did you feel your jiu-jitsu held up because that's they're considered like some of the toughest gyms in the world basically you know but there's so many pros there how was that um, it, gave, it gave me a lot of confidence because obviously, like I've all, I've done, I started training in like a tiny little valley's town. So we've got like a population, like I don't know, like fifteen thousand people here. So going out there, I was really surprised how my level stacked up. Like I was training with a lot of Tellers, his best guys, and I was older my own and one of probably the the best purple belt out there. And then I went to Atlas and I held my own with like their purples and browns. So it was just one of those things. It was just a, I thought, yeah. I'm, actually getting somewhere yeah it, it, it was uh, quite it took me aback a bit because i knew i was good like on a on a british level or european level but obviously it's a different kettle of fish with being in the mecca of like modern jiu-jitsu as it is like california and my jiu-jitsu held up really well so it was it was more a uh, confidence booster i just thought yeah you know what i think i'm on the right track because i was i was doing really well against guys who i knew were world class so it was it was, it was yeah it was a good confidence boost did did it ever come an option to stay out there? Did you ever did it cross your mind that you thought maybe your career, your jiu-jitsu career, might take a different path if you stayed out in the US? 
Uh, yeah, I, I did have the, the, the option to stay, like Tellers, like every time I went out there, he was like super good with me, he basically took me in like another son, he let me live with him, or like stay in the gym, depending on how long I was out there, and he never charged me for training, so it was an option, but like financially, it's like <clears throat> those trips are like really expensive, like even like I was living like on a, like a proper strict budget, and even then making that last was, was, was difficult. So obviously at the time I was training jiu-jitsu full-time and I wasn't earning a whole lot or, or no, not, not enough to, to support staying out there. But I made like um, like three or four trips out there for extended periods. And it's something that I, I really fondly look back on because I think it gave me um, a different perspective of training, mm-hmm. different methods, getting to train with different people and just, just open my eyes up to what, what, what level you could achieve just by, by working hard and being diligent. There's a, there's a few guys like Ben Dyson. I know as uh, I, I believe he moved out to either Canada or America. Is it, is it something that is on your, on your horizon for latter in your career? Is it something you would take overseas or you, are you happy, you know, in Wales uh, with your team that you've got there? Is it something that interests you at all? Uh, yeah, it's something that interests me, but to, but to be honest with you, like I for so much in the, like building the academy here and helping build the jiu-jitsu scene where, where I'm from, I think I owe it to like the, the next generation coming through it that I'm here to help them because I've got like a lot of high-level experience and I do really get a good buzz about um, like coaching like the younger generation coming through and giving some of that back, especially to my local area because... Like when I was a kid, I didn't have access to things like this. I didn't have any coaches that cared about me. Like all the kids that come into my gym, I treat them like they're my own children. We've got like one of the strongest, we've we've been working our kids program for like the last 11, 12 years. And I've seen kids go from being like six, seven years old to like 17 and the blue belts and purple belts. And I've seen them grow up in front of my eyes and it gives me a immense sense of pride that they go on, like a couple of them go on to like the, the forces and things like that. And they've built a nice career and jiu-jitsu has given them a nice little avenue into life. Maybe like hasn't changed their lives, but it's definitely given them uh, opportunities, opportunities which I didn't have. Mm, mm. So I think it's really important, especially in the area I'm from. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just going back to the Euros, uh, it, I, I guess the Euros is a, it's a different experience for everyone and you've done the Euros a lot. Is it, do you think the amount of times that you've been to the Euros helped you with this last, you know, I mean, the black belt categories are incredibly, no matter what masters, you know, you're so no matter what category you're in, they are incredibly competitive categories with people that have been doing jujitsu often a lot longer than the, the, the guys from the UK and, and whatnot. Is it, do you think there's something you got from going out there and competing so much this time that helped you get on the podium? Uh, yeah, definitely. Like the, the early experiences of going out there, like uh, being like at the old venue, especially, there was like a different atmosphere at the, uh, the old venue. But again, that initial experience and then going into like these black belt divisions, like, if you just look at it from an external perspective, people don't understand just how high that level is. Mm. Like even like looking at like adult master one, master two, you look at all the categories and it's just insane. Like the level of people in there is, uh, is mind boggling. Like 
even still, when when I when I get on these major podiums, I'm looking at the guys who I'm next to and I'm beating. I'm like, I, it's still a bit surreal because like you see the level of jiu-jitsu beating guys like I think this past year was everyone I beat was a Brazilian, mm-hmm. like a Brazilian with a lot longer training time than me. And yeah, I think those initial ex- experiences of getting so close to the podium, yeah, uh, put put me in good stead because eventually when I did make it for the first time at Brown Belt, it get, I, I fought some were probably the, the best brown belts on the planet at the time to get through to the the the, the podium there and it, yeah it's like a, a big confidence builder but i mean not yeah, being funny it, you have to only have to go there to look at the blue belts to realize how high level the competition is in total i mean it, it's ridiculous isn't it you look at even some of the lower belts and there are killers there proper professional athletes 18 year olds in their absolute prime um just killing it so it is I, I think it's one of those ones unless you unless you go and and see it for yourself you, you you just can't you can't fathom it and i think the black belt level is just that next level you know it, it's uh it, it's it's difficult to it's difficult to take that in george you had a a question for jamie about his prep and stuff didn't you yeah so uh, you've got quite a lot of uh, achievements under your belt uh, was there one in particular that you can remember that you had maybe the most sort of intense training session for? And what was that process like? Um, probably, uh, I, I prepared pretty much the same for, for all tournaments, but the most intense one was probably my first world championships. Uh, going over as a purple belt, I was, I, I was like staying with Tales and I was, I was living in the gym. So I lived in the gym for, for I think it was a, a month. Maybe that was the oh yeah that was the first trip, and I was training like four times a day, so I was I was getting about six seven hours of jiu-jitsu a day, and that was the first time I'd really trained that much. I was I was a bit of a mat rat when I was back home, like training like twice a day, but when I got I was doing like a six a.m. class, then I'd lift weights at like ten or eleven, then I do a midday class, and then I drill in the afternoon and I train in the evening. So that was like the most intense, but I really enjoyed the process. I think it's one of those things until you've gone full time and you've experienced that everyday grind of having it on your body, it makes or breaks a lot of people. Like I've seen a lot of guys with good potential at blue, purple, they start training full time and within a year or two, their body just goes, nah, fuck this, I, I can't do it. For me, it was the opposite. I just really enjoyed that process of being on the mat and training full time, like a, like a proper professional athlete. So I think I got... That was the most intensely I ever paid for one. And I think that's where I made like the biggest strides. Hmm. But obviously back then I had the benefit of being a bit younger and a little bit more naive. But through a lot of my career, I've changed my training slightly, but just to like refine it. But yeah, that that, that world championship, that was, uh, that was a really good training camp. So I had access to a lot of good training partners. I, I was again to speak to Dean Lister all the time and like people like Yuri Samoz would pop in and I had like uh, Sergio Rios Pichilinga just moved to the US. So he was my main training partner. So I was, I was really lucky on that trip. How did your body cope with that, um, Jamie? You said that obviously some people's bodies can just handle it and, and, and some people's can't. How did... Did you was there like a um, a, a, a bedding in period for your body? Did it did it have to acclimatise to that level of training, or was it something that was like genetically you just felt bang? This is like working for me. I can I could do five six times. 
Well, it's, it's a funny story. I did that world championship and I trained that intensely and I came back and within two months, I uh, blew my knee out, knee out completely. Right. And then that was a big turning point in, in my jiu-jitsu career as a whole because I did a um, 100% rupture of my lateral and my medial meniscus. So basically, my meniscus turned into a ball and ended up jammed into the back of my knee. So my, right. my, my, my leg was stuck in a lock for, I think, like two months. I couldn't, couldn't straighten my leg. And um, so I had like the period of eight months there where I couldn't really roll. And my leg wasted away. I had severe atrophy in my leg. Like I went to see a surgeon and he was like, I can't really fix this. He said, I can clean up the knee, but he said, there's nothing, is that bad? This was like a, a Welsh FA surgeon, which I was, I, I was lucky to get referred to. He said, basically, I haven't seen one this bad. So I had like eight months of my leg wore away. I couldn't train. But that was a big turning point for me because then um, uh, a guy I just started training at our gym was one of, my, one of my good friends and my strength and conditioning coach. Now he's now a purple belt under us. And he said, oh, if you want to come and, and, and do a bit of uh, strength and conditioning. Like up until this point, I was, I'd never do any real strength and conditioning. I'd do like maybe one weight session in a blue moon. So I started working with him just to, just to rehab my leg. And then I think I was out for eight months and it got to like the Christmas time and I was still struggling. I was like, I couldn't roll, but I was, I was rehabbing myself. And then my coach sat me down, uh, Greg, he said, but unless you get your mind right, your body isn't going to follow. Cause I think I was, I think I was depressed. I think I got to the point where I thought it was over. I thought it was done. I thought oh, I'm going to have to stop competing, stop training. But then something clicked. And then within, a month, I missed the Euros because I was still a little bit behind on my rehab. I went to the London Open there in the February just to get back into competition. This was towards the end of my purple belt. And I went to the London Open and I submitted everyone. And I got my brown belt on the podium. So from that point, my competition results went through the roof because I was doing strength and conditioning. I was more aware of the ways to listen to my body, not overtraining, making sure I was getting better nutrition, better rest, um, uh, training more effectively. So I think blowing my knee up was the best thing that ever happened to me in jiu-jitsu because I don't think I would have got the level I'm at now without that adversity and the change in mindset. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it, really? How, how something so negative because you think knee injuries, that, that finishes a lot of people off, doesn't it, really? That, that, that seems to be the end of them. So that was your coach that sort of changed your head around that, do you think? Yeah, it, I, I still remember the, the conversation like really, really vividly because at the time I think I worked myself into a bit, of a bit of a dark place where it was like I was on the mat and I wasn't really being constructive. I was there, I was miserable. And Greg's always been really straight with me. Like since day one, he's always told me, well, I need to do and he's never he's never panned to me he's always given me it because he knew he is what I wanted to do he's always been really tough on me which I've always appreciated and needed and he sat me down he said look if you're going to sit there and show off and you're not you know your, your mind's not working in the right way then your body's not going to follow and since he did that and he gave me that conversation like I was happier in myself instantly my body started working again and then since then it's just been 
the best period of my jiu-jitsu career. I've just enjoyed every single second since then. So it was like a, something triggered in my head. And I can't put my finger on where it was, but effectively between uh, my strength and conditioning coach and Greg sitting me down, they, they saved my jiu-jitsu career. Because I honestly think if I kept on going on the way I was going, I would have just knocked it on the head. Amazing. Adam, you had a you had a question about um, uh, Jamie's training regime and things like that. Do you want to go with that? Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Sorry, a bit of coronavirus coming out there. So, Jamie, you teach, um, assume you do private, so that kind of stuff. Do you get all your, your cash is mainly from um, teaching and private? Is that how you sort of get your... Uh, yeah, your income? my... my... My main source of income is uh, teaching, teaching at the uh, Celtic Pride Martial Arts, and then I run like my own little offshoot once a week, which is uh, Celtic BJJ Tolvine, and then through privates and seminars. So, you, like everyone, you've got it. You know, you've not got um, a silver spoon, so to speak. You've got to work for your money. How do you fit in all of your training as well as all of your work commitments? Because you obviously compete at a high level. Um, you know spreading out your um your work and your training sometimes when you're tired you probably gotta go to work tell me about it uh yeah so um my schedule basically is i I train and teach six days a week uh sometimes seven depending on my body feels but i teach jiu-jitsu pretty much every day or multiple times a day so um like an example for a day I'll, i'll wake up at like 5 30 I'll be in the gym by like 6.30 a.m. I'll do like a strength and conditioning workout. Um, I'll come home. I'll have like a, some breakfast. Then I'll go to the academy and I'll teach the, the morning class. So I'll teach that. I'll, I'll mix in with a bit of the training as well. Uh, then I'll come home again, have another quick bite to eat, like maybe like a little rest. And then I usually go in from about 4.30 p.m. I'll teach a kid's class, then maybe beginners, and then I'll train in the main classes where we got most of our students. And I'll usually get off the mat about 9.30, maybe 10 p.m. sometimes. So, yeah, long days, lots of hours. But uh, the, the balance between teaching and training, I always try and keep, like, 60% for my training and 40% for my teaching. But I get a lot of enjoyment from teaching. Probably the more I've trained, uh, the more enjoyment I get out of teaching. So now it's one of those things, even when I'm tired, I think I could be doing a lot worse things. I could be working, I don't know, a 12-hour shift in like the local factory, but I'm earning my, my wage doing something which I don't really consider work. So the balance is, is good at the minute. I, I enjoy every week I go into the train, even when I'm tired. So I, I think I'm lucky in that regard. I do, but... The hardest thing I found when I started teaching was not um, smashing everyone too much. How do you sort of deal with, not not ego as such, but the, you know, putting someone in their place, so to speak, in a nice way, um, uh, knowing as, you know, do, doing it for their benefit, not, not in a horrible way. You know what I mean? You don't want to um, ruin someone's life, so to speak, but sometimes people need to know their gaps. <laughs> Yeah, like um, when I train, like we're quite lucky. Like even though we're in a small town, I've got access to a lot of good training partners at different levels. I've only got like um, like two or three other black belts to train with, but we've got a lot of like varied abilities. So uh, when I'm training, it depends on the training partners. I know I've got like a core group of guys I can go 100% with, like, and I'm not going to hurt them. 
a lot of the other guys, I've got to rein it back in and not, not push at a high pace just in case. I, and I always think of my training partners like your favourite toys. If you play with them too rough, you're going to break them. So there's, there's certain people I'll take it really easy with, let them work. But then there's my training partners who give me the nod and they're like, yeah, we, we're going to fucking kill each other tonight. And I like that, having that, that, that differential. Like, I know I've got some guys I can go try and kill them, put stuff on as hard as I want, and they're going to do it right back to me. And then I've got other guys I can work different types of game with. But yeah, like when it comes to to smashing people and disciplining people, like that's always been kind of my job in the gym. Like Greg's always said to me, if someone's out the line, just go go make them feel, feel like they're not so good anymore. And we've got a couple of guys in the gym like that. We've got one of my training partners, um, Andy B., He's like a really, really intelligent guy. He's like a doctor in engineering. He's like the most consistent guy ever. He's been training like 17 years, trains twice a week, but he's the guy who we usually, if there's someone like getting a bit boisterous, getting a bit rowdy, go roll with Andy B. And then he's just got the worst sight control in the world. And he just puts the shoulder of justice into him and rubs his airy chest in their face, a rugged justice. <laughs> and they soon settle down. So yeah, we got a lot of guys. The rug of justice. We got a good wow. vibe in our- <laughs> yeah, the, ru- the rug of justice. Enforcing the rug of justice. I like it. Sounds like a good man. That's uh, yeah, that's me for now, Jamie. Cheers. What about you, Ryan? You had a you had a um, question about the, the the difference in tournaments and and single yeah. matches. Do you um do you prepare differently if you're let's say you're fighting in Polaris and you know you've only got one fight? Do you train differently for that, or do you just carry on your normal, your normal regime, or do you switch into the sort of training regime you would if you were preparing for a tournament? Yeah, yeah, I've got um, like throughout the year, I'm always competing like pretty regularly, so I've always got like varying things coming up. But if I say, for example, I'm fighting on Polaris and it's like Nogi for like maybe five weeks, I'll take my gear off and just train Nogi. Same if I've got like a, like a Euros coming up, I'll probably like only train Nogi maybe once or twice because at the minute I do like a, a 50-50 split between the two because I enjoy both of them in equal measure. But if it is something like a Polaris, like the, the, the Polaris which just got cancelled now because of obviously the, the, the COVID outbreak, I was about three weeks into training for that and I was only really putting my gi on to teach. So I like to, wherever I'm competing, I like to just do that just so I'm sharp in that area. Nice. Have you gone through periods where you've only trained in the gi or you've only trained no gi for like extended periods of time where you've preferred one or the other or have you always tried to split it 50-50? Um, to be honest with you, I've, I've, through my career I've trained in the gi the most. I'd probably say if you were to like factor it out, there's probably like 70% gi, 30% no gi, but I've always trained no gi at least once a week. Because obviously, like, I've done a lot of nogi when I was uh, training MMA, and it's one of those things I've always found nogi easy. Not, not, not uh, like, compared to the gi, I think it's a little bit easier. Yeah, that's fair enough. I get equal enjoyment from, I get equal enjoyment from the two. Like, recently, especially at the last 18 months, I've been really into my nogi. Then, I'll, if, if someone gives me a straight thing and it says, do you want to train gi or nogi, it's always gi. 
Yeah, because it's the, it's the first thing I started with, and I still get the most enjoyment out of that, but it's a pretty close parallel now. I like the two of them. Yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, Kerry, you want to ask Jamie what it's like to be a real Welshman, or any other question? <laughs> oh, sassy Dave is sassy today. No, no, I'm going to switch it up, actually. Um, I was going to ask you about your uh, knee injury. Did you find that when it, you know, obviously your strength and conditioning helped you, but did you ever guard yourself, uh, you know, uh, worry about the knee if you, when you were getting back into rolling? How did you, you know, the, the mental side of it, you know, I, I guess you could do as much strength and conditioning as you want, but you've, you've got to overcome the, the thought of that thing going pop again, you know. Uh, what was, you know, did, did you spend a long time guarding it? Uh, yeah, I'd probably say... I injured it in July of 2014. I probably say it wasn't 100% until about the last three months of my brown belt. So for about two and a half years, I had like regular occurrences where my knee would lock again. And I'd have to go through the period of like rehabbing. But, and I was still competing full time at this time, competing at like high level tournaments. But the way I guarded it, when I first done the knee injury, I was like playing like a lot of um, Baron Bolo, De La Hiva, things like that. So when I first started going back into training, I had no option but to play half guard because it was the only thing which wouldn't put pressure on my knee. Yeah. But that was like a good thing because I started playing half guard and like now I probably consider half guard my best guard. So it was one of those things, my half guard was always like, mm, it was suspect up until because I was all close guard. I was like, yeah, if you get on my close guard, you're fucked. But then half guard, I used to use, use defensively. So when I injured my knee and it was the only guard I was forced to use, I started really appreciating that sort of style. And because I, I only had to use the one leg in that half guard. So for me, like, yeah, it was probably about a two and a half, three year period before I felt like I could go 100% without, without the fear of it going again. Yeah. But it's, it's one of those things, like, I know, like, I haven't got no meniscus anymore. So it's solid bone on bone all the time. But it's got to the point now where I don't even notice it. I, I, I don't know which one's my good one and which one's my bad one, because I've gone through everything with it. And I'm just like, but it's not going to get any fucking worse. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things, like, again, I think it was a blessing in disguise because it made my game more well-rounded. It gave me... Uh, appreciation for how you can play a game and protect like certain injuries and still have success with it. Whereas now, I'm the most flexible I've ever been. I'm the, I'm the strongest I've ever been, and I know how to look after injuries. And I can kind of notice them before they happen. So it's one yeah. of those things. It, it, it was it was a good experience. I, like I wouldn't advise it. Like say, oh yeah, go out, blow your knee out. You know, <laughs> you'll, get at, you, you'll get good at other stuff, but. As far as like a learning experience, it was it was a it was it was a big turning point, and they forced me to work on other areas, which is I'm I'm really happy I, I did now. Yeah, blessing in disguise, eh? Yeah, the um I was going to ask you as well about growing up in Wales. Um, I grew up down west in Pembrokeshire, and access to things like you know plastic ah shush um, um access to things like jujitsu um just wasn't a thing when I was a kid um you know it was just basically just hanging out with your friends we had a local judo club but um 
you know um so, so when when you grew up when did uh when did jiu-jitsu appear or was there a club always there um when i was growing up like i come from abdullary so um statistically is the second most deprived area in the uk behind london like there's not a lot of things going on here you basically got a choice when you're a kid there's either football or rugby that's it that's there's no real other alternatives it's like either play football play rugby or go be a, a nightmare on the streets and cause trouble yeah. so yeah. The first, the first jiu-jitsu club um, that I was aware of was the first one I ever went to. That was Greg's class. That was that was the first like jiu-jitsu class in there. And at the time, Greg was a blue belt, and that was like like Jesus appearing as a mirage. He's like, oh my <laughs> god, a blue belt. So I just think I fell in really lucky, like the fact that Greg was from Abbey. He was commuting like four or five nights a week to go train in Bristol with Pedro. So I think there's, there's a there's a good thing that at one point Greg was spending more on going to train in Bristol than he was spending on his mortgage. Jeez. So him putting in all that initial early work and then bringing it back and starting to teach. The only reason he started teaching is because he wanted extra training and training partners. So then from there, I just managed to, like, like I said at the, the start of the podcast, I got forced to go and I just kind of stumbled into it. Mm-hmm. But it's what is one of those things like I'm really glad I did because I don't know where my life would have gone if I hadn't been forced to go to that class. I don't yeah. I look at I look at the area and people I grew up with and To go out and see the world and, and, and get more experience, often at the times of him not getting to do things. So if it was a straight choice between him going to a world championship or me, it was mm. often he would he would he would give me the resources to go do it. That's great. So where, um oh, go where, on. where did judo come into it, Jamie? Because I know you got a judo black belt. Where, where how did that weave its way into because also to achieve that whilst training as much as you did, you know, it takes time to step out from BJJ and then go and commit to a another club. And how did that work its way into your sort of repertoire? Uh, when I was a white belt, like just before I got my blue belt, um, Pedro was doing a class in Sophia Gardens at the, the National Judo Centre. So at the time, they, uh, Craig Ewers was the, the Welsh national judo coach and he just started training jiu-jitsu. I think Craig was a, a blue belt. So uh, we used to go cross-train with all the Welsh judo squad. And then from there, like um, I got friendly with Craig and Craig started teaching uh, judo like uh, like bi-weekly at our club. He'd come up to Abilary and that's how I got my first taste of judo. So I was doing like like a little bit of judo up until about purple belt, and then one of the guys from the the Welsh National Judo squad, uh, Stephen Abley, he's he's my judo coach now. He started training jiu-jitsu like really intensely with us because he was uh, trying to get back for the the Commonwealth Games. So he was training a lot of jiu-jitsu to stay sharp for the Noaza, and he started running the class once a week. And he was one of my main training partners from like purple all the way through to black. So basically, I I was having like privates all the time with abs just in judo, and he, he he saw that I had like a not a talent for it, but I worked hard and I wanted to understand it. 
So I trained really intensely with him and, and competed in judo and things like that just to round up my game because I didn't want to be there, get a black belt and be that guy who doesn't know any fucking takedowns because it's, it's embarrassing if you're a black belt and you can't throw someone on their head. So I started doing that and, and uh, I was probably, I probably trained judo from purple belt all the way through to, 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 to black belt intensely. And then I got awarded my... Uh, I, uh, my judo black belt, I think it was November of the year just gone. So, very cool, excellent. And what what is what? Obviously, you you still got loads of comps to do. What what are your ambitions as far as martial arts is concerned now? Where what is your next thing you've got your eye on? Is it the same comps, better results, or are there new? new challenges that you're looking at, do you know what I mean? Like ADCC and things like that. Is that something that interests you? Um, you know, what, what's, what, what catches your eye moving forwards? Um, I'm probably at the point now where I've competed in every tournament I wanted to compete in. I don't think I've got anything left to prove, not that I've, I've done everything, just in, like, as I've won Nogi Black Belt, I've won Gi Black Belt, things like that, major tournaments. What gets me motivated now is just anything that excites me. Like if if Polaris come to me with a with a big match, or maybe if there's like um, a big tournament I really want to do, is gonna excite me now. I think gone are the days where I just compete for competing sake. Like no no disrespect, like some of the smaller events, I it doesn't interest me. If someone said, "Oh, do you want to fight in the the Bumfuck Open in the middle of nowhere?" I'm like, no, it doesn't. It, it doesn't excite me. But if someone says, oh, do you want to fight on Polaris against a multiple-time world champion? Absolutely. Sign me the fuck up. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, looking towards it, um, I would like to do the ADCC trials. That's something I'm looking forward forward to doing. I was looking forward to doing this year before before this madness broke out. But, yeah, that's, that's one. That's a goal. But, yeah, anything that excites me, big matches, big tournaments, like, I just want to... Before I'm too old, I just want to say that I've given it everything and done everything I could to get the results I wanted. So, yeah, it's just in terms of competition, it's got to excite me and get me up for it. So at this point, I could care less about winning or losing. It's more the experience and doing it not for myself, but also like the guys at the club. I just don't want to be one of those black belts that kind of says, oh, yeah. I got the black belt and I'll just stop and now you guys do all the work. I want to be in the trenches with them leading the way. Like if we go to a major tournament, I want them all there cheering me on and, and showing that, that I'll, I'll always, I'll always compete at, at, in some capacity, but I want to do big things, things which, which excite me. I just want to drill down that mentality just real quick, because I think it, it, you, you said something there and I think that's really quite powerful especially in jiu-jitsu and you said at the moment i don't i don't care whether i win or lose but i saw you at the euros you're mega competitive so in a way you obviously you do care but is that something that you have in you that means that takes away that that ego that a lot of other black belts have of protecting their reputation is that that sort of thing that that obviously you you desperately want to win, 
but the fact that you if you do lose you don't see that as the end of the world because there's a lot of black belts that just you know like you just said yourself they get their black belt no interest in competition then it's almost like they want to protect this sort of um you know this this sort of leading force without being tested how does that mentality the the winning and the losing mentality that you got there work well um you won't find anyone more competitive than me i'm probably like anyone knows me they'll say jamie's the most competitive person i hate losing i with the passion i hate it but i'm not afraid of losing if i go to a competition and i've done everything in my power to prepare and I go there and someone better than me beats me, I've got no qualms about that. I just see it as a as a, a good experience. I'm like, I know what I gotta work on now. But I'll never ever be scared of losing because I think some people are genuinely terrified of having that facade of invincibility broken. Like they only like you see some people they only compete at small tournaments or they only go into tournaments where they kinda know they've got a really good chance of winning. Maybe they go against subpar opposition. With me, I just think if I prepare to the best of my ability and I go against the highest caliber of opponent I can find, if I win, amazing. I know I've done everything right. If I lose and that person's better than me and is at no fault of my own with regards to preparation, I see that as a good thing as well because I've learned a little bit. I've learned something there, something I've got to work on because at the end of the day, we're never going to be perfect. Like with me, I know my jiu-jitsu is never going to be perfect, but I go into every tournament, and every training session, thinking that I want to get to that point where my jiu-jitsu is perfect. <laughs> is one so, of my, is one of, I'll oh, go on. No, go on, go on, Jamie, interrupt me, go on. I was going to say like, <clears throat> one of my favorite quotes is, um, perfection is unattainable, therefore my journey is endless. So I think with that, I think it always gives me something to work towards. Yeah, that's really interesting because something Adam and I talk about quite a lot about now, you know, jiu-jitsu is, it's, it's, it's not, it's maturing in the country. There's a lot of black belts that you see now. And really, do you think there is now going to be, or in the future, there is going to be a division of black belts between those that compete and those that don't, do you think that is, I guess, do you look at your, do you hold yourself in higher regard because you do have, go through that proving ground? Because it is like, you know, not only is it mega stressful, but it is, there is a risk, you know, it's your livelihood as well. And you've been injured before. So there's, there is a risk to every comp as much as people say, well, look, jujitsu isn't, you know, MMA or whatever it's still your knees and your elbows and your ankles and everything else that keeps you ticking along. Do you think there is going to be a future where, you know, even now you've got competitors almost signifying themselves with a white band on their black belt. Do you know what I mean? People wouldn't do that if everyone was the same in my mind. Is that something that you recognize that as we move forward, you're going to have bang, there's Jamie, the competitive black belt that's who I want to go train with and round the corner there's John he's never done a comp you know since blue belt what does he you know what do we know if it works do you think that's relevant yeah yeah I think it is, it is eventually going to move towards that it's like with um with judo 
like I, I take judo as an example, you've got literally there's thousands and thousands of judo black belts in this country. And I think about, I'm not one to make like court statistics, but I'd probably say like maybe under 5% of them compete and probably even less than that at an elite level. So I think uh, jiu-jitsu is going to end up that way where you will have strictly like pro divisions. I think it's getting that way now, like with the, the sub-only scene with like Polaris and Grapple Fest. Most of the guys who are on these shows, they're either really high-level enthusiasts or hobbyists or they're full-time guys. But not to say that I think if guys who get who get a black belt and don't want to compete or they don't compete through any of the belts, I won't look at them any different to myself. That's their that's their prerogative. If they don't want to compete, that's fine. The I think the problem where it becomes an issue is when you've got these guys who are getting the black belt thinking that they are on the same level as competitors. Like, oh yeah, I could do that. It's like, no, you really couldn't. They, like at the end of the day, there's black belts and there's black belts. Mm. There are black belts who beat up color belts in the, the the luxury of their own academy, and then there are black belts that go out there and kill other world class black belts in competition. I think as long as people know the difference between those two things, I think all black belts are equal. But I think if if you are a competitive competitive black belt, I think you should get that that recognition for how difficult it is. But I would never put myself on a pedestal to any other compet- any other black belt who doesn't compete. So I've got a lot of training partners who don't really like competition. I don't look at them any differently. They're still some of the toughest training partners I've got. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And it and it and I and I guess it's it's nice to have an insight from yourself who competes a lot at a high level. How you perceive yourself and how you look at others and how that sort of strengthens up your resolve in competition because like you said just then some people don't like competing i don't although you know competing is difficult i i you know i guess speaking personally i've competed all my life in something or other um i don't know if i like competing but i like the challenge that competition holds and i'm in the same boat as you, I don't really worry about the losing side as much as I want to win. I'm not fussed about losing, or I'm fussed, but it doesn't have a burning, uh, you know, issue on my brain. If it, it won't stop me fighting again. Do you know what I mean? It's not going to stop me putting myself to the test. Putting myself to the test is more important than the losing element. And is that how you feel? Like you have the desire to test yourself and prove yourself not even prove yourself, but just test yourself and your techniques against the best. And that is more of a driving, um, I guess, ambition than the chance of a loss. Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. Like, I enjoy competing. It's my favorite part of jiu-jitsu. It's like one of, one of those things, I think, the way I look at it, I always grab something like coming up competition-wise because it gives me a purpose. So if, I, if I'm training and I'm just ticking along, I don't think I get the best results out of myself unless I've got something to aim towards. So even like, for example, my students, I say to them, I'd say, even if you don't like competing, competitions like taking medicine, you may not like it at the time, but it's going to make you better. So I even say to them, look, just even if you want to compete once a year, set that as your little goal to give you something just to keep your, your training going all through the year. Because you think, 
ah, I can't slack off because I've got maybe the end of the year competition coming up. So for me, it's like, it's a massive, every day I wake up, I just think, yeah, I'm going to get a little bit better today because I'm going to go into competition. I'm, I'm going to get, going to get a big result because I do enjoy the process. I like, I like those nerves. I like that, that weird excitement. I like the build, the process, the training as much as I like the competing. So I think is like, is it, is a, is a massive tool competing. You probably like have a, all the guys you've had on the podcast, you ask them about why is competition so good? It's because it makes you better quicker. It makes you fill in those gaps you maybe you didn't know you had. Like for me, if I wasn't such a, a voracious competitor throughout all the belts, I know I wouldn't have got the level I'm at now. Because it forced me to get better. I could have easily like had a little bit of success and then, oh yeah, that's good enough for me. I won some, won some tournaments. But for me now is at the point where, like even now I've been training jiu-jitsu for like 11 years. I still think I'm only just scratching the surface of what I can do. So for me, I still get excited every morning to get up and train and like competition is, is still that thing that drives me on because of the thing I, I probably enjoy most about jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. Adam, you had another, you wanted to, you forgot to ask a bit of your question. What were you going to say, mate? Yeah, you always look in a uh, good shape, Jamie, in a non-gay way. Maybe a little bit, okay? Whenever I see your uh-huh. comps in the bullpen, and that, <laughs> you look you look all ripped up. Um, you your weight, you, you put your same as me. You like the heavier weight classes, like heavy, super heavy. You, you done ultra heavy yet? I don't think you done. You haven't done ultra heavy. Have you? No, I've done, I've done. I've had actually most of my success at ultra heavy. Yeah. So you're uh, you're the bigger sort of division, isn't it? But how do you keep your nutrition in check for training of your your busy schedule and um, your nutrition leading up to comps because I've got my own little things I do and they work quite well but I've, I've sort of got there by trying so that KFC KFC anything fried if it's only been on the floor for 10 seconds yeah. he eats that as well a baby lots of coffee Whenever I go to Euros, I have about eight coffees a day. Yeah, yeah, I have massive yeah. poos. Literally, going to Euros, every, maybe every train stop or other train stop is having an espresso or a double espresso. Yeah, they're like 70p. Why wouldn't you? It's like the nectar of life, isn't it? Yeah. It's the dirt you've got to get involved in at the, when your metabolism sped up at the venue. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's when times are tough, mate. When you when you've yeah. got your geek bottoms dangling around you, trying to just navigate them above the piss. If you haven't pooed yourself on the mat, have you even lived? <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you get your what's your nutrition? Any any top tips for anyone? And you know, for um, maintaining mass without putting on the chamber like me, because I'm quite I'm quite big. Uh, to be honest, with you, like. Uh, when I first started uh, training in jiu-jitsu, the first ever weight class I competed in was featherweight. So from white belt competing featherweight, I fought in every weight class. So I've got like a weird metabolism in where that I can eat pretty much wherever I want. Like I need, uh, I think I had like a lot of body testing and I need like almost 3,000 calories a day just to maintain the weight I'm at. Yeah. So, so through like all my training, like when I go into strength and conditioning, I was probably like a uh, middle, medium, heavy, and then obviously like 
when I started lifting weights intensely, I had like those, those like the noob gains, and I ended up all the way at the uh, ultra heavy. So, like a hundred keys, and my body fat's really low. Like I said, I've got a weird metabolism. I can eat ice cream every day and still be like eight percent body fat. It's really weird. I don't know when my metabolism is going to slow down. But uh, I think the biggest thing with it and like my nutrition, like through the week, like Monday to Friday, I'll just, my meals are like high. I'm, I, I have a really high carb diet, believe it or not. Like probably like 7% carbs because it reacts really well in my body. And obviously I get my protein and all my supplements and everything else in. But I think the biggest thing is just consistency. I don't have any point of the year where I slack off my diet or I slack off my strength and conditioning. Year round, I'm doing the same things and, always working towards um, like a new goal in like strength and conditioning or like maybe aiming for a higher weight class. Maybe I'll bring myself down. So I've got a weird metabolism in that I can fight anywhere at the minute from 88 kilos, which I fought. I managed to diet down to for the last Polaris. And then like two months later, I was fighting super heavyweight at the Euros. It's just, I've got a weird metabolism, which can allow me to bounce around from medium heavy up to ultra heavy. And having that frame, obviously I'm six foot six. My body can hold mass, or it can I can take the mass off and maintain the muscle mass. So, yeah, it's just a my body's a bit of a weird experiment at the minute. But it, it's like you said, it's a lot of trial and error. But I've got to the point now where I think I know it inside out. So if I need to lose a little bit of weight, I know how to do it. Or if I need to put on mass, I, I know how to do that as well. Ideal. Do you um? Do you have a cut weight then to get down, or would you just sort of lay off, lay off the portion sizes? Um, no, I probably the last weight cut I did where I actually cut weight was my one of my last MMA fights where I got down to seventy-seven welterweight. After that, it was such a horrendous cut. I said I will never like cut weight again, but I will like um, diet down. Like for Polaris, when I, I fought the Nastasa. I had to be under 90 kilos and I think I started my cut from 99. So I just dieted down for six weeks. So I like went to um, a guy, I know he'd done some body testing for me. He said, look, this is the amount of calories you've got to eat to lose that weight progressively. So I dieted down. I think I, I weighed in 88 kilos. So I lost about 10 kilos progressively. Uh, just through um, just a little bit of calorie restriction. I think I, I shaved like maybe 300 calories off my daily intake and that helped me get down. That shows a weird my metabolism is. Yeah. If, if, if I if I let myself slack off not taking creatine or having those amount of calories, I will come back down to about the 90 kilo mark. Whereas the, the, like the supplementation I do at the minute, like taking creatine, a lot of like protein, like a high carb protein diet, I can sit at about 100 kilos. So it's dependent on what I'm doing in the gym as well and what my strength and conditioning coaches go me on. I do. Do you, um, I like creatine, but I, I tend to fluff up quite a bit. Do you get, do you get that as well? Do you get a bit, a bit of water no, tension on you? I get a bit of water, but it doesn't really um, like affect like my body fat and things like that. So, like I said, I've got a super weird metabolism. I'm expecting like turn thirty and then just turn into a, like a gelatinous blob. Turn into me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, now you're growing a beard. You get a hairy chest. That's it. Yeah, the next time I come down for a seminar, we're going to be like brothers. Yeah. yeah. Hello, mate. <laughs> I'm a twin. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, that's great stuff, mate. But yeah, my um, I I struggle to once I've got weight on, it's hard to get it off. <laughs> Adam just has two or three less like popcorn chicken pieces and. It, yeah. The thing out. is of him is he is like Captain Extreme. So he he will either be on a ketone diet, dying in the gym, wrapped in a blanket, l- looking like uh, an Ethiopian. Patient yeah, patient zero. Or he's just given up veganism and he and he literally <laughs> bounces from one takeaway to another takeaway until he hits 115 kilos. I nearly died doing both of them diets as well. But I lost loads of weight. Yeah, but it's because do you, don't, you don't stick to anything. You just you, you like bounce around. You go from, oh, I'm a vegan, to actually, no, I've just gone straight to carnivore. And now, uh, you know, I'm going to go keto. He had a takeaway was... between every pub on our Christmas day. And uh, I am, um, my biggest thing, my biggest pain, <laughs> this Euro's just gone, not to have like a little violin, but I was losing so much weight and enjoying it. And then I caught a bloody flu. And that was it. Had to Corona. go out, so heavy. Yeah, coronavirus. Corona. Corona KFC. What, what, uh, what tips would you give to, I guess, any competitors at any level, even black belt level? If, let's say you've got guys that want to get back into comps or, you know, anything like that. Is there any any sort of tips you would get, mindset tips, anything that they should be doing when they're training, anything? You know, what should they be aiming for out of each session? Any any tips like that, Jamie, for people like looking to improve I, their game? I think if you're gonna you're gonna go into a competition, is all about um, your intensity and your mindset. Like if you're just training normally, like just going in, like just doing an average lesson, we drill a bit of technique and then do a couple of rounds. That's all well and good. That's 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 fine for like year round training. But I think if you're gonna say right, I've got six weeks, I'm gonna go compete at I don't know like an IBJJF Open or something like that. I think your intensity's got to change. You've got to think, right, I've got six weeks now, not to work on anything new, anything experimental, just six weeks of rolling hard and implementing the game I'm going to do when I step on that mat in competition. Because I see a lot of guys, they train for competition, they're trying to do new stuff. It's not the time. You've got other set time in the year to, to work on like your, your weaknesses and your things like that. When I know I've got a competition coming up, the guys in my academy will tell you there's like a little switch goes off because I go from maybe being like the playful rolling partner to being like, just wants to smash everyone and implement my A game. And it isn't that I'm being a dick about it. It's just I know I've got to be rolling that intensity because that's the, the thing I intend on doing when I step onto that competition map. So I think like intensity and winning mindset like six weeks out, I'm already telling myself I've won that division. I've, it's like visualization. I probably watched myself climb up on that podium and receive that gold medal 300 times before I actually get there and do it. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. But I think mindset and the intensity in which you train that has got to be there because you see a lot of the guys, they sign up for competition and then they just kind of like meander their way through the train and they get there. The intensity is too much. They get battered first round. They're like, oh, why did I lose, coach? It's because you didn't prepare in the right manner. Preparation for competition is everything. And do you believe in drills? Are you, are you, do you do a lot of drills? Are you primarily like sparring and things like that? What's, what's your, what do you lean towards? Uh, when I was a lower belt, I used to like drilling. 
the further I go for the belts, the more I like rolling. Right. But there is there is a reasoning behind that. I think when you're a lower belt, you've got to drill the techniques to get that feel from because obviously you were one of the lower ranks, so you've got to do that time. Once you get the higher belts, you can kind of use like your white belts, your blue belts, your purple belts to a degree as active drilling partners because you've got that sometimes the gap the gap in skill where you can drill where you want to drill, but on live opponents. I think that's just the benefit of experience and having like a like maybe a higher skill level. So I roll more now as a black belt than I did through all the other belts. I because like I, I roll pretty much every day, twice a day now because that's like kind of my drilling time. So if I've got something in my head, I want to roll as much as I can so I can get those reps in. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Anybody got a, a question for Jamie before we wrap it up? Because we've got one more, we've got one more big question coming from from the Cronk. Anybody got a, any final thoughts just, for Jamie? Yeah, just a quick one. You trained at Gordo's, didn't you, Jamie? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, yeah. 2013, I spent spent the summer there. Yeah, that with with Dennis as well. Was that through Connection Rio and that, or was that? Did you guys? Yeah. Um, well, I think it was like 2013. I was um, I'd been a purple belt for a year, and Dennis put up like a like a competition for I, I think it was like he was a, a wanted um, guys to apply, and he picked some sponsored athletes. So um, I like sent like a video and like a like a CV in, and I had an email back about like two or three months later after that, and he he, he chose me, and he said, oh, look, yeah. I'm offering you, I'm not offering you um, free training free accommodation all you've got to do is is get your flight booked so at the time it was like a massive deal for me because i'd always i'd watched like um like people train and i'd always be amazing to go to like the where, where it all originated so i think i, I from that moment I, I knew i had to save money because i wanted to go for three months which I, that was how long my stay was so i worked like um night shifts in like uh asda the local asda so I was training full time and basically having about three hours sleep a day and working working ten hour night shifts to afford the trip to Brazil. So I, I saved like really hard for eight months and then I went out and I was lucky enough to to train at Gordo's and and have the experience out in Brazil. Like probably to this day, like my my favorite memory of Jiu Jitsu is that that summer I spent out there because I got the fully immerse myself in like Brazilian culture and see the way they train, pick up things. I made a lot of friends for life. Um, got to pick up a bit of the language, got to train at like Terrier's Academy, um, a lot of the, the big academies over there. So I knew Terrier beforehand from his, from his time in time in England and Wales teaching seminars because obviously he was one of Pedro's coaches, my uh, Pedro Bessa back in the day. So I got really friendly with Terry, so I had the opportunity to train with him there in, in his gym in the favela. So, yeah, I learned a lot in Brazil about um, training and, and the world and myself as a person. That's what pretty much, that trip solidified what I wanted to do with my life because mm. I, I saw everything that, that encompassed it. And I was like, this is for me. So I always say Dennis, uh, the opportunity he gave me did change my life and I like, a lot of the teaching he gave me and the 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 the, the black belts at Gordos like um, Tiago, um, Weber, Tochi, all those guys there, they really took me in and treated me as one of their own. Because when I first came in, I wanted to roll with everyone. 
and I was there all hours of the day and they took me in as one of their own but so by the end I was like what part of the family or someone was like really thankful for all, all the people there because they did a lot for me yeah they're nice guys aren't they as you pulled yeah. your gigs held up Jamie uh when we go to the Euros I'm usually the guy who orders everyone's food because that's the one thing I got really good at doing oh really <laughs> yeah so like I, I I describe my caveman as like um uh, caveman Portuguese right? so I can like make my way through I can understand conversations so I think through immersion out there like yeah the classes were all taught in Portuguese for the most part and if you were, were lucky enough to have like Tiago teaching he teach a bit of English so I just like I can understand the conversations it's coming handy for competition now and again because. A little thing I do at the the big IBJJF events, I'll speak to the refs in Portuguese, like right. a little bit before, before the matches because you don't want to get gringoed. So they can't tell half the time because they're seeing that many guys. So I always like say, "Oh, to the bomb." Nice. Uh, like one nice. Hat, and it, they're like, "Oh, you must be like a really white Portuguese guy." Or, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> is, is it something you think you'd like take up and perfect moving moving long? Is it something you think you'd like look to explore a bit later? I'm quite interested in languages, so it's is that is it something you'd be interested in learning properly? Well, it's like well, while well, the lockdown's been on, I've got like a, a Portuguese book which I I studied a lot when I was younger, so I've got that, and I'm just trying to brush up on it a bit now because it's it's one of those things like I think like for especially for the sport I'm in is is beneficial to know Portuguese because obviously with like the commands in like the major tournaments being in in Portuguese and things like that I think yeah there's like with languages like I'm quite embarrassed like as a Welshman I can only speak like really basic Welsh because we're not taught it in school it's not mandatory so we've only got to do like one lesson of Welsh a week when we're younger and then it stops at a certain age which i think is is, is shocking mm. it's like one, one of those things like i honestly say i mean i'm embarrassed as a welsh when i can't speak fluent welsh but i'm in the majority there so by time i like i want to that's one thing i want to learn to speak fluent welsh and i want to learn another language because i think being like bilingual is a it's a massive tool because i've got a lot of friends who speak multiple languages and it seems to open a lot of doors mm. Mm, absolutely yeah definitely i think you notice that when you go over to to like the euros to portugal and you realize that it's pretty predominantly the english that can't communicate with hey mate i do uh, i do all the communication oh for my you. god James. i'm fluent in portuguese man. listen please you don't want to get a cab with this i guy. have an espresso for <laughs> <Por> favor <laughs> If they don't if they don't understand the first time, just shout louder. Shout, yeah. yeah. Or go really Adam, on and go Adam slowly. just shouts big dick, little dick to literally everyone. Uh, he he just he says uh what's his favourite phrase, Adam? Pow enorme. That's it. And then he just points to whoever he does whoever's Pau with him and says Microscopico. <laughs> That's it. Of course I'm a viado. Yeah, of course I'm a viado. Yeah, I'm fluent, mate. Pretty much it. So, listen, Jamie, thanks so much for coming. Don't forget the, the other question, mate. I'm leading up to that fuck face. Let me. Fucking <laughs> 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 you know, sitting there and looking like a bit of a circle. I'm fucking doing one, two, three, fours. Totally fucking shit, mate. You can't even do lead up to the ending. Oh, right, I start again. Shut the fuck up. Thank you, Jamie, for coming on the show. 
it's been really, really interesting um, speaking to a real competitor. Although we do have Ed Ingemels on every now and then. He's a bit old at, to be fair. Kill so. <laughs> 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 me when we get back to training. But whatever, I don't care. Because while lockdown's on, I'm tough as fuck. So just say what I like. Yeah. He's going to kill me when he gets his hands yeah, on no, you. Yeah, he's going to kill me. But then he kills me anyway, so what's the fucking difference? Um, but we're going to have to ask you a question, Jamie, that you're probably not going to get on any other podcast. Um, so, Ryan, take it away. Let him have it. Right, you've got to fuck, marry, or kill one of the Spice Girls. Which one do you fuck, which one do you marry, and which one do you kill? Oh, oh that's a good question. We've had some. We've had psychologists on here and asked that question. <laughs> we, literally, this is a leveler. Everybody's on the same. You don't even have to have a doctorate to answer this question. This is it. It's tough though. Mm, it is. Um, so, which one would I fight? 90s Spice Girls. Yeah. Not not not. Oh, they look now in in their prime. Yeah. 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 Right. So. Fuck, probably scary spice. Yes, my yes, yes, my yeah, yes, love. She, she, she looks, she, she looks like at the filth. She's crazy, but that would probably be after the fun. A hundred percent. The best answer we've ever had on this fucking podcast is people going all sorts of fucking crazy shit on that. <laughs> so, uh, Mary would be Emma Bunt, and that's probably the the, the stock answer in there. Controversial? No, I think I think that's. I don't think that is stock. I think... No, M. Bunton was the best one by far. That's the, that's the one you want to settle down with. Interesting. Uh, so, Kill. Oh, that's, that's, that's a tough one. That's like split between Jerry Arlowell and Paul Spice. <laughs> you got Sporty still. Don't forget Sporty because you're in there. Uh, I, wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to kill her, but I wouldn't want to do with any of the other two to her either. Uh... <laughs> Uh, Post Spice because she furloughed all her staff. Yeah, nice. Yeah, everyone has killed her. Yeah. E- e- even though, That's why even I- though I, I have no idea how David Beckham is with her because he seems like a really nice guy and she just seems like an absolute cunt. Yeah. yeah <laughs> probably, that's probably true. That just probably is. She's probably got some weird hole over him. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's closeted. Whoa, Whoa. psychic. Oh, checking yeah. out. She's got a secret. Well, <laughs> she just did. Are we ready for a more advanced version? We got. We're going to progress this, Jamie. Maybe not now, but later on, we're going to find a. What we're going to do with this, Ryan? We're going to find a new girl band and ask the next set of questions. Yeah, originally I was going to do a different girl band every week, but I don't know enough fucking girl bands to do I, it. So. I, I think you've got to do that girl band with those set of questions, and with the next set of questions, think of a different girl band. We've got to think of another universally known girl band. All right. Um, season two we'll of Fuck, Mary Kill. Season two of Fuck, Mary Kill. Next level shit. This is going to be like... Next level. <laughs> next level. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, Jamie, for coming on. It's been great chatting to you. I think Cheers, people Jamie. are going to get so much out of that, just competitiveness and that that's mindset and things like that. It's, it's brilliant. And wishing you all the best for uh, the future as well, coming out of this madness. Um, 
you know, really looking forward to seeing you uh, at the upcoming comps, at the Euros, you know, just doing bigger and better things all the time. So, yeah, brilliant. Thanks for coming on, mate. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll get it down our Welcome place on. again, mate. Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. Brilliant. So, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Kerry. Jord, thank you, Ad. And we're going to see you uh, next week. Ooh, we've, got, we've got another guest next week. Who we got coming up? Ad. On Friday, yeah, we've got uh, Darren Yeoman from uh, Torquay, uh, old friend of mine from back in the day. He's black belt, owns a gym. Um, got some good stuff to tell us. Wicked. So we're going to get some stories out of Darren. Hopefully we'll get a Matt cover out of him while we're at it. <laughs> yes. Quality. Making all the deals happen. <laughs> Lovely work. Thanks. See you next week. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. How do I stop recording? <laughs> the three <laughs> dots mate absolute melt three dots stop recording